Welcome to the Visionary's Guide to the Digital Future. If the best way to predict the future is to invent it, then let's get you ready to do just that. You see, this podcast is created for the visionaries of today who are charged with creating the digital experiences of tomorrow. I'm your host, Paul Lima, managing partner at the Lima Consulting Group. From Wall Street to the Pentagon and Fortune 500s alike, I've been a part of some of the largest digital transformations ever done. We promise three things here, a strategic perspective, content geared for decision makers, and actionable insights to the real problems that digital visionaries can apply immediately. Our first season is all about data. It's past, present, and future. Each episode has three segments, the digital pulse, the quick hit, and the decision maker's advantage. We begin with the digital pulse, where we provide insightful and relevant perspectives to those who have leadership responsibilities. It's more than a curation of industry news because we give our take on the latest happenings and reveal an insider's perspective to arm you, the digital executive, from what shiny object syndromes that come from within, perhaps from a well-intentioned board member or even a lurking detractor who may be resistant to change. Then we shift gears and together, we're gonna go into beast mode and build your digital fitness by introducing you to the quick hit, high-intensity training, practical and short, this segment will keep you fresh and current and provide you the strategies and rubrics you need to lead your staff through the rapidly evolving changes so that you're best able to create winning customer experiences. And finally, we'll slow down and introduce the decision maker's advantage, where we'll discuss a topic with industry veterans who've been there and done it. This segment will reveal the unlocks that will augment your professional judgment and help you accelerate your corporation's business objectives and even your own personal career trajectory. Those who listen to the visionary's guide to the digital future have an unfair advantage as they invent the future with their finger on the digital pulse, having invested in their digital fitness and having gained a long-term perspective mixed with practical ways to apply what they've learned within minutes. Let us know if we're helping you accelerate your business objectives. Subscribe to our show and message me directly at social media or email me at paul at digitalfuturepodcast.com. This week on The Digital Pulse, we explore the Adobe acquisition of Figma. So what were the vital stats? Well, in mid-September, Adobe announced it had entered into a definitive merger agreement to acquire Figma, a leading web-first collaborative design platform. And the total price was approximately $20 billion in cash and stock. Since they already have products that do some of what Figma does, it was a curious purchase indeed, at a horrific valuation. Unless, of course, you were lucky enough to have participated as a private investor in Figma. Consider that by Adobe's own press release, Figma has a total addressable market of $16.5 billion by 2025. That's in 2025, like three years from now. And yet they paid $4 billion more than the entire TAM estimated three years from now. $20 billion. So Figma is expected to add approximately $200 million in net new annual recurring revenue, ARR, this year in 2022 surpassing 400 million in total ARR exiting 2022. So with gross margins of approximately 90% and positive operating cash flows, Figma has built an efficient high growth business. So let's assume a 35% net margin. That would mean that Adobe paid 140 times EBITDA to acquire Figma. According to microcap.co in their study of 95 SaaS company acquisitions, 
The median multiple against EBITDA was 11.7. Might take decades to break even on the Figma business line. Adobe really bought it to avoid another competitor to acquire it and start winning with creatives. The valuation for Figma, according to PitchBook, was $10 billion last year in 2021. So my best guess is probably Salesforce, Oracle, or even HubSpot. One of the other MarTech or AdTech platform players were bidding against Adobe. The threat of allowing one of their biggest MarTech competitors to have a terrific product to sell to creatives would have been absolutely unacceptable to Adobe, especially if the competitor was bidding on both Canva, which is a complementary platform to Figma, and Figma. Let's keep an eye out and see who winds up attempting to, or successfully does, buy Canva. And my bet is that was the competitor that Adobe was trying to box out. Canva just announced their valuation at 40 billion in their latest capital raise in September of this year. So that's why I say that Adobe overpaid, and I'm not the only one. The stock tanked 12% immediately after the announcement. Prior to this, their largest acquisition was Marketo, which they bought for 4.75 billion, and there was a lot of business logic and code that went into that product. So something that's gonna be a challenge for Adobe in realizing the value from Figma is that the architecture and storage layer of Figma is widely different than that of the Adobe Unified Architecture. So I wouldn't expect much integration very quickly. To their credit, they do invest in bringing their acquisitions into the platform, but consider that with Marketo, we're still at least three years away, in my opinion, from bringing that platform into the Adobe Unified Architecture. Marketo's integration into the Experience Cloud has gone slowly, with only a few features being tied into the platform. And remember, that acquisition was in 2018. The price Adobe paid for Figma is five times the size of their largest deal to date. And it didn't really come with any earth-shattering technology or new client base. Miro, Mural, Prezi, Google's Jamboard, Fresco, Graffiti, and Microsoft Whiteboard all have similar feature sets. The ability to zoom into a digital whiteboard or canvas is a dime a dozen. And if you're a creative and you use Figma, you already probably use the Adobe Creative Suite. So this wasn't an offensive strategy, it was pure defense. The tech needs to be integrated, and Adobe, and this is typical of any acquirer, takes years to do that. So they paid an insane premium, they bought an overlapping product suite, they didn't acquire many, if any, more customers, but they did remove the option value from competitors to enter Adobe's dominance in selling to creatives. Overall, it could be the right move, but a big price tag that may take decades to break even. And that's my beat on the Digital Pulse. Welcome to the Quick Hit. Let's invest in our digital fitness and get busy with some of my greatest hits from the speaking circuit. The Quick Hit is designed to ground you in an insight that you can immediately apply in creating the digital future. This season's about data. So what better place to start than understanding the impact the data is having in our society, our companies, and even in our 401ks? Let's start with a question. Who has power? If you consider companies with the largest market capitalizations, then we gotta go back to 1870, and that would be the oil and gas industry. So since 1870, it was the oil industry that had an outsized influence in power in every dimension you could think of. Since then, They've been the largest companies in each of their respective continents. They adopted many of the aspects of the colonization playbook of the Iberian Peninsula. 
and their influence in modern society is astonishing. From Africa's tumultuous rise of its poorest country becoming its richest on a per capita basis, Equatorial Guinea, to our own American journey of John D. Rockefeller, considered by most as the wealthiest human being to have ever lived. The oil and gas industry's influence is everywhere. To put that in context in today's dollar, Rockefeller had $420 billion in today's dollars. Elon Musk currently has $212 billion. So yeah, Rockefeller was about twice as rich as Elon Musk. But power has changed hands. And unlike other transitions of power, be they peaceful or violent, this transition happened under our noses. And most folks didn't even know it happened. But perhaps there isn't a watershed date that future generations will be able to point to that showed the moment where this transition occurred. You know, like the song about Columbus sailing the ocean blue in 1492. But the balance of power has quietly shifted to organizations that are bigger than all but five countries. And these companies have, relative to other industries, few laws that govern their operations. And the consumption of these companies, well, the average citizen in developing nations interacts with these brands for seven hours and 11 minutes a day. Think about that, seven hours and 11 minutes a day. So in 2006, the biggest companies as defined by their market capitalizations were Exxon, GE, Microsoft, Citigroup, British Petroleum, and Royal Dutch Shell Petroleum. The group of the major oil companies have their own name. It's called Big Oil. And that's the name used to describe the world's six or seven largest publicly traded oil and gas companies, also known as super majors. Their fossil fuels lobby is a force that is always punched above its weight. So let's fast forward 10 years to 2016. In that time, Exxon dropped to the fifth on the list. And the companies above it learned how to collect and monetize data. Data about their consumers, their users, data about us. From here, let's fast forward five more years. And by 2021, Exxon dropped out of the top 20. Notice that a new entrant in the oil and gas industry emerged, and that being a newly formed company called Saudi Aramco. And if you're unfamiliar with them, that's the privatization of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia's oil and gas reserves. Why would the royal family take the country's oil assets public? Well, they wanted to diversify out of oil, cash out, if you will, and invest their private fortune in tech, of course. And in that time, we entered the fourth industrial revolution. This revolution is also called the digital revolution. Klaus Schwab, founder of the World Economic Forum and the force behind the Davos Forum hosted annually in Switzerland, recognized that the types of challenges we faced in our past are gonna require dramatically new ways of thinking to solve the challenges in our present and those that we'll be certain to face in our future. So what have we to learn between this analogy between oil and data in addressing the digital future? And why should senior executives care? Well, over the last 18 years, I've been hired to assess various digital business models and even operating models for companies large and small. And in just about every case, our analysis shows that data is greater in value than all but one asset. It's greater than most companies' real property, most of their intellectual property, their licenses, their capital, their equipment, their physical assets, and trade secrets. In many industries, it's even greater than the value of the knowledge workers a company employs. There's no doubt in my mind that this is true for most businesses with very rare exceptions in software 
and some highly scalable light manufacturing applications. And it's always more valuable than cash. So if that's true, do we leave our company's cash in all sorts of nooks and crannies laying around the office? No way. We have standards for how we account for all of our income, governance, if you will. And more importantly, there's a single consensus view within the organization of how we account for all aspects of financial management. And so should it be for our data. We have auditing firms and general accepted accounting principles, rules and enforcement mechanisms, and an internal controls apparatus that companies deploy for our financial management. So here's our takeaway from the quick hit. Data should be treated as the valuable asset that it is. Indeed, it's the core asset for why the new titans of industry dethroned big oil. There's a lot more that we can learn by drawing from the analogy of the great oil barons. And that's exactly our topic for the decision maker's advantage. Welcome back to the Decision Maker's Advantage, our segment of the show where we reveal the unlocks that will augment your professional judgment and help you accelerate your corporate business objectives and personal career trajectory. Today, we're talking about transitions of power from oil to data. The wealthiest person in history, Rockefeller, was twice as wealthy as Elon Musk. But consider that in terms of the maturity cycle of data, we are still in the early innings. That means that there is still a lot of headroom for companies that are monetizing data. So if you think that your company has missed the chance to participate, there is still plenty of room for innovation left ahead. Data is still underappreciated, and in many companies, unrecognized by knowledge workers for the worth that it has. I would say that's also true for investors, that they don't value companies with an eye towards the value of the data that the corporation has collected. Think of data as an oil reserve. How can it be refined? And what value do those parts of our globe carry? What have oil reserves meant to the countries that have found them? There's a lot to learn by drawing from the analogy of the great oil barons. So let me ask, how did our great-grandmother see at night? Say before 1870. Can you tell me when electricity first was installed in a home or a building of any kind? Take a wild guess. The first house to be powered was J.P. Morgan's. You see, Morgan funded Thomas Edison, who used the banker's house as a beta test. But the detractors began discounting the achievement from the very beginning. Started with J.P. Morgan's own father. The very night they flipped the switch at the launch party. Electricity was too risky as an investment. And it might be a fad, he warned. So if Junius Spencer Morgan, who was JP's own father, couldn't recognize the value of electricity, why do you think your board of directors will value your digital transformation initiative? It's not like Junius came from a line of uneducated Luddites. One of Junius's in-laws relatives was James Pierpont, one of the founders of Yale University. And Junius's own father was one of the founders of Aetna Insurance Company. In an effort to preserve his customer base, especially the lucrative customers in Manhattan, Rockefeller created FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, about the safety of electricity. New Yorkers had none of it and switched to electric light bulbs very rapidly. Kerosene lamps, ah, that was for those who couldn't get access to electricity, so passe. New York politicians were also sick of getting held hostage to the rail barons 
who were using their distribution monopolies to take profits and exercise undue influence in politics. In other words, the ecosystems of companies that supported oil grew along with the commodity. The steel, rail, oil, and newspaper tycoons really were the top beneficiaries of the industrial revolutions. And boy, were they busy protecting their monopolies. They bought presidencies, judges, even countries. And they yielded great power at a time when government didn't know how to deal with such powerful entities. They were too big. Too big, meaning too powerful. Monopolies. Companies that were too big to fail. And this story repeats on every continent. Ever since Rockefeller founded Standard Oil in 1870, every continent's largest company has always been their respective oil company. So you fast forward to 1911, and as part of a general public concern of several monopolies, the Supreme Court determined that Standard Oil was in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Standard Oil was broken up into 34 smaller companies. Some of them you may have heard of now. Exxon, Mobil, which is now Exxon Mobil, Esso, Marathon Petroleum, Amoco, and Chevron, to name a few. From about 1870 until 2006, Exxon led the second and the third industrial revolutions. It was only four years ago when companies that collect and store data all overtook the market cap of the energy companies. But crude oil is just a commodity. So why did Standard Oil emerge as the monopoly? For that, we need to understand the value chain. Crude oil is a raw commodity. It comes from the earth. And while it's super valuable, it's traded on the commodity markets and whether taken out of the ground in Texas or off the coasts of Brazil, its properties are essentially the same. Some regions require less refining, other regions require more, but it's all crude oil hydrocarbon deposits of naturally occurring petroleum. From there, the refineries take the crude oil and distill it into various petroleum products. Everything from diesel to gasoline, kerosene, and even jet fuel. And the final stage is that other manufacturers take the refined oil and use it to power machines and to manufacture thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of different products like fishing rods and kayaks, boats, nail polish, guitar strings, parachutes, and even pantyhose. What Rockefeller figured out was that the raw commodity had to be processed and that required refining it. And once he learned to standardize the process for refining it, he literally slapped that on as the brand, naming his company Standard Oil. The brand spoke to the concerns about gas igniting because less sophisticated crude oil well diggers were using moonshine-like refining processes, and they started shipping it via rail where there were often explosions. So he essentially figured out how to take a raw material and apply a process that increased its value. He processed the commodity to a state of readiness where any machine could use it. We're gonna come back to that analogy with data. But why was oil so valuable for so long? What does oil power? Oil powers machines. It fuels engines. It can also be made into derivative products. Oil powered the first three industrial revolutions. So if oil powers machines, what does data power? Data powers decisions. It powers 
the digital revolution. Better said, data fuels the decision sciences. What's that? Well, decision sciences is an interdisciplinary field that draws on lots of others like economics and math, the management sciences and machine learning and AI, statistical decision theory and operations research, actuarial sciences, behavioral decision theory, and cognitive psychology, and many, many other disciplines. In other words, it's the logic that powers a decision, an algorithm, an equation. Said another way, it's the learnings accumulated over a career. It's what enables experienced executives to make good decisions. However that logic is captured, it's the data that enable the experiments and first-hand observations made over large numbers of interactions and spans of time to find the insights and intelligence to improve decisions, to provide the judgment to determine the next best action. In order to power a machine, oil is refined in only one of 700 refineries in operation today. Similarly, in order to power a decision, data needs to be refined, and we often refer to this as data governance, normalizing it, scrubbing it, standardizing it, cleaning it, and making it trustworthy. Sound familiar? But unlike oil, anyone with knowledge about the data can do that on any computer. Data can also be used simultaneously, and it doesn't expire. In the future, we're going to be able to create value from data within milliseconds of when it's actually collected. For example, consider tools like Otter AI that simultaneously convert speech to text during a Zoom call, or a new technology called OneMeta.ai, which has a real-time simultaneous translation engine that uses natural language processing for speech-to-speech -speech translation. You speak one language, and everyone on the call can select their native language, and they instantly hear you in one of 82 languages. We can use data, which is observable recordings of ourselves and the world around us, to better serve digital experiences by providing helpful experiences at scale. So that introduces several related issues related to ethics. No one captures these nuances better than Shoshana Zuboff in her book, Surveillance Capitalism. It means that we need to better understand what constitutes information. Who should know it? Who decides who should know? And then when she blew my mind with her third question, and even who decides who decides? Every industry is already or quickly becoming an information science. And combined with these predictive outcomes, some of which are stunningly accurate, we can reduce risks. And with better foresight, we even begin to change our relationship with time. These are topics that we'll more fully explore this season in future episodes. My hope in sharing this with you is to help you consider how your organization is refining your raw data. Are you treating it like a commodity? Or are you adding value to your data by putting it through a refining process? Are you centralizing it and standardizing it? Are you segmenting it and then using it to personalize the experiences that your stakeholders and customers need? Are you using it to create relevant content? Are you using it to better price your offerings? Or perhaps you feel like you're leaving money on the table by having a single price for all types of users. Are you using it in your product development life cycles? It touches every aspect of the value chain and every cost driver and value driver. Are you using data to create customer experiences and digital customer experiences 
to take market share and earn your customers' loyalty by enriching their lives. If we thought the previous three industrial revolutions were big, and hey, going to the moon and Mars is something our great-grandmothers couldn't even imagine, the leap that we'll take as we learn how to leverage data into improved decision-making will be exponentially bigger. So there you have it. The next time someone compares oil to data, you'll be prepared to weigh in with some insights of your own. But more importantly, you now understand that data is more valuable than money, than intellectual property, than equipment, and even in certain cases, your staff. It powers decisions, and it is the raw ingredient you will use to create winning customer experiences. But here's the cautionary tale. And if J.P. Morgan's own father, who founded the bank we know today, called J.P. Morgan, Morgan Chase, if he called electricity and the oil that powered the Industrial Revolution that gave rise to the modern economy, if he called all that a fad, don't be surprised when your board asks you to prove out the company's digital transformation with baby steps and with a series of underfunded projects. Hopefully with that, you'll learn in the decision maker's advantage today and in future episodes, how to be prepared to break the inertia and build out a robust business case. What else did I miss in our comparison of oil and data? Where do you agree or disagree? I'd love to engage with you about your perspectives. Stay tuned to the Visionary's Guide to the Digital Future, where we explore all of that and more. In the meantime, share the graphic below and join in on the conversation and weigh in on your opinion about what senior executives need to know about how to unlock the value of data. Please share your feedback with us on social media and follow us on YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. I'm Paul Lima, host of the Visionary's Guide to the Digital Future. I'll see you in the digital future.